Is the real world ready for driverless vehicles? I'm Jim Park. This is HTT Talks Trucking, Season 8, Episode Number 6. Every day, it seems, we hear driverless vehicle advocates telling us how close these things are to reality, particularly driverless trucks. The technology obviously works. Currently, dozens of trucks are out there on interstate highways mixing and mingling with humanized cars and trucks. As they log more and more miles, we're hearing few reported incidents of automation gone wrong. Does that mean they're ready for prime time? Well, Christopher Hart doesn't think so. He's a former chairman of the National Transportation Safety Board. He's a lawyer and a licensed commercial pilot. He also served as an investigator in the Federal Aviation Administration's recent probe into the certification of Boeing's 737 MAX aircraft. Chris Hart is a safety guy through and through. He studied automation and transportation for years, and today he's still uneasy about sharing the road with driverless vehicles. He recently penned a provocative commentary on the matter called Driverless Motor Vehicles Not Yet Ready for Prime Time. It's on the website of the National Academies of Science, Engineering and Medicine. We have a link to that blog in the show notes, and I urge you to give it a read. My conversation with Chris is coming up next. But first, please remember to follow and connect with us on social media. We're at Heavy Duty Trucking on Facebook and LinkedIn. And on Twitter, it's HD Trucking. Since you're already a podcast fan, I invite you to check out some of Bobbitt Business Media's other fleet-related online content. Our other three fleet publications cover work trucks, automotive fleets, and transit and motor coach fleets. These sectors are confronting some of the same disruptive influences that we are here on the heavy-duty side. I think you'll find we have a lot in common. You can check them out at bobbitt-business-media.com. Christopher Hart, thanks for joining us on HTT Talks Trucking. Glad to have you aboard, sir. Thank you very much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, We've delved delved into autonomous vehicles several times over the past couple of years. And uh, I like bringing perspectives to this table that, you know, we don't normally hear from in the industry. You as sort of an outsider, uh, but one with a huge background in safety and and a, you know, a 40,000 foot view of what goes on in the world. I really want to get your perspective on this. Uh, You wrote a blog recently for the National Academies of Engineering on driverless motor vehicles. It was called Driverless Motor Vehicles Not Yet Ready for Prime Time. I read that as kind of a cautionary word, uh, not a dismissal of the technology at this point. Could you kind of sum up your feelings for us uh, about driverless vehicles generally at this point in time? You're absolutely correct that it is cautionary because I'm a gadget geek myself, so I love the idea of gadgets, but more to the point, In the U.S. alone, we lose more than 100 people every day on the highways, and I think that automation could significantly reduce that number, not necessarily take it to zero, but significantly reduce that number. And I'm all in favor of that, and uh, and I think there's a huge opportunity to do that. But the caution is we need to do it right and be ready to go. when we're. I mean, we, we need to not do it until we're really ready to go. Well, we'll dig into a little bit later in the podcast sort of a definition or, or some way to determine when we're ready to go with this. That's going to be an interesting question. In that blog you did, you, you drew a lot of comparisons between automation in aviation, uh, that is, you know, autopilot. I would argue that the, the operating domains of aircraft and vehicles are quite a bit different. And I just kind of wonder how, you, how we make the connection between autopilot in an airplane and something in a vehicle. 
that's driving without any human assistance. I don't know uh, how, I don't think it's an appropriate comparison to make, frankly, uh, but a lot of people do. Do you have any thoughts on, on comparing those two domains and how automation fits into either of them or both of them? Well, the, you're correct on noting the automation emphasis from aviation because aviation is where I have the most experience regarding automation. I'm, I deal with transportation automation in general, but the most automated mode in transportation is aviation. So that's what I know the most about. In terms of the two domains, the, the difference in my view is that the, the ground scenario is much more complicated, much less predictable, much more variable than the aviation situation. So, so in that sense, in my view, aviation automation is much easier to accomplish than automation on the ground. So for all the wow factor of autopilot and airplanes that fly themselves and land themselves, it's still a pretty easy task at 40,000 feet. It's much more predictable and much less variable. And in that sense, yeah. easier, but certainly I, I wouldn't call it easy by any stretch, but easier. Yes. Okay. Okay. That's yeah, that's a fair, fair thing to say. Well, even if it's more predictable, uh, it's, it's still, I guess at some point, uh, prone to failure or mistake, reliability is always uh, an issue. You've said in the article that uh, in your blog that aviation automation is extremely reliable, dependable even. But where we run into trouble with it sometimes is when we get into situations that the engineers or designers who created it didn't anticipate. You made a great example in the blog of the uh, uh, the miracle on the Hudson. <laughs> Could you explain, uh, you know, what the ramifications are of, of getting into situations that the designers and engineers didn't anticipate? When I, when I talk about the, the comparison, the comparison I'm making mostly is the environmental comparison, not so much the comparison of the automation itself, but the fact that the environment is what is much less predictable and much more variable on the ground. So that that's really what I'm referring to when I say that it's easier on the ground. Okay. So what was it about the miracle on the Hudson? that made that an interesting example to study? Well, the, cha- the biggest challenge in automation in general, you mentioned reliability. So failure is obviously a challenge and that's obviously every, always going to be a problem, but, but the, the, uh, the automation has become so reliable that it's not very much of a problem, except to the extent that the, the more reliable it gets, the more complacent the, the, the users of it become and the less vigilant they are to, to be ready to take over if necessary. Having said that, the problem with automation in aviation has not been so much failure. The problem has been, as you suggested, encountering situations that the designers didn't anticipate. So the landing on the Hudson was an example of of a situation the designers didn't anticipate, and that is landing a a jet airliner in a river. So Sully had never been the the captain of the airplanes, Chesley Sullenberger. He had never been trained to, to glide an airliner. He had never been trained to land an airliner without power. Those of you who fly know that when you're landing, you you can tell that there's still a considerable amount of power until just seconds before you land, but he was never trained to land without power. And third is he's never been trained to land on water. And that's tricky too, because there are a lot of cues when you're landing on land that you don't have landing on water. But but he handled all three of those uncertainties spectacularly. And that was was an amazing, that's a, a problem that we're having with automation and aviation is that as it gets better and better, we're running into, or increasingly running into situations where the pilots are encountering scenarios that they had never seen before, even in training. And then they have to respond in the moment 
and Chesley Sully responded in the moment and did it spectacularly. So the problem, the specific problem he had was when he went immediately before touching down, the, the pilot pulls the nose of the airplane up, that's called the flare. So you, the idea is to reduce the vertical speed so that you minimize the impact speed, the impact of the airplane with the ground, or in this case with the water. But when he went to pull the nose up, the automation in his airplane restricted his ability to pull the nose up somewhat so that he couldn't pull it up as, as far as he anticipated to be able to, which meant he hit the water much harder than he anticipated. And we'll, we'll never know he hit the water hard enough that it actually breached the airplane and allowed the water to enter the airplane and cause a significant injury. We'll never know whether if he had been able to flare as much as he wanted to, could he, he had hit the water much more softly, much more gently and not caused the breach of the fuselage that allowed the water to enter or cause that injury. So in that case, the, the automation on board, the, the, the built-in system on the, uh, on the A320, I guess it was, was preventing him from pulling the nose up as high as he wanted to, correct? That's correct. Yeah. And he didn't know in advance that that was going to happen. So right. he was anticipating doing a regular flare or, or as regular as you can over water, a, a normal, a relatively normal flare. And that was, he was, prevented from doing that by the by the dampener in the autopilot. Well, at the risk of armchair quarterbacking this, would the outcome have been different, do you think, if the automation had handled that landing, touchdown, uh, watering? <laughs> uh, could it have done a better job than, uh, than Captain Sullenberger did? That's a very good question, and I think it's only a prediction. There's no way to know because we don't have any empirical basis, but I think the answer is no. I think he did much better than automation would have because even though after the fact you can design automation to do a, a, an outstanding job with hindsight, the hindsight meaning knowing what the, what the damage is, to, to design an automation without that hindsight to be able to handle all the potential scenarios, I'm, I'm confident that, that Sully provided the, the, very, the, the adaptability that's needed in that highly unusual situation that automation would not have been able to, to, to do. So I, I, I'm, I'm comfortable that he did it much better than automation could have because just the mere fact of landing in the water, that's a decision with the automation of trying to land at a nearby airport and not being able to. We don't know <laughs> yeah. what it might have, what it might have done. So I think I'm, I'm confident that he did as well as you could expect any pilot to do in that un, unpredictable, un encounter, you know, not previously encountered circumstance. Well, automated cars and trucks are going to run into all kinds of unpredictable circumstances. Is it possible for the designers, engineers who are putting these things together to conceive of every possible outcome? That's why I said not ready for prime time because right now we're not we're not there. And so I, I just went through this big time by teaching my daughter to drive. And so I can't tell you how many times every day we were out there and I ran into a scenario and I said to myself, what would my automated car do in this situation. And, and some of them were fairly commonplace, but some of them aren't. So one of the very commonplace situations is turning left on, onto a busy two-way highway. And that's, that's challenging even for humans, how automation is gonna do that, that will really be a challenge. So they're, they're, but I'm thinking of less common challenges like the double park delivery truck, then will your car violate the yellow line to go around the truck or the construction area with the guy with the stop slow sign telling you to stop or slow, depending on what the circumstances are. What, or you, you've seen situations with big intersections where you cross the intersection and you have to move laterally to stay in lane, but you can't really see until you're more than halfway across the intersection where your lane is. 
So I'm just, you know, situations like that, that's, that's what makes me wonder how is automation going to take care of those kinds of scenarios? It's, it's amazing to me when you think about it and, and some of the scenarios you just spoke of, we take driving much like walking, almost, a, you know, a habit. And all these things go through our heads as drivers and we make decisions instantly on the spot. The first time we encounter a situation, we may not know exactly what to do, but the second or third time it becomes pretty comfortable and we even probably get complacent about it in a lot of cases. When you start to train AI systems, you're really tasking them with a huge job to start making decisions based on on, on the world around them where they have no background to draw from. That's a really interesting proposition. Training of AI systems brings in its own multiple multitude of challenges, not, not only the, the learning part itself, but also the fact that your car will behave differently after it's learned than it did before it learned. And so now you have to be able to respond to how your car is going to behave. Now, that obviously won't be an issue if there are no drivers in the car at all, but it's, it's an issue today while we still have drivers in the car that their car is learning. And so, you know, your car last night in the garage might have received a software update. So now you've got actually a different car than, than you had yesterday. And how, how well will drivers accommodate to that? So that's, that's a problem we're having right now as we're transitioning out of having drivers. Once you have no drivers at all, then that's not an issue. But today it is definitely an issue. Well, that's an interesting wrinkle. We're speaking with former NTSB chairman and safety and research advocate Chris Hart. After the break, Chris and I will talk about how humans and computers play together and how to determine when driverless vehicles will be safe enough to share our roads. Don't forget to subscribe to HDT Talks Trucking so you don't miss any future episodes. And please give us a like and a rating if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts. HDT will premiere a new feature in 2022. It's a combined video and audio podcast, and we're keeping the name HDT Talks Trucking. We'll be connecting with industry leaders to present digestible 10-minute videos and full-length audio podcasts that dive deeper into the subject matter. And don't forget to check out some of Bobbitt's other video and podcast products, The State of the Fleet Industry with Mike Antich and Lauren Fletcher's Truck Chat. They're all on your favorite podcast platforms, and they're easy to find on the Bobbitt website, bobbitt-business-media.com. A couple of years ago, I wrote a blog about an incident that happened in Las Vegas between a, it was a fender bender between a, a little shuttle bus and a tractor trailer that was trying to back into an alley. Interesting that, I mean, for such a minor occurrence, NTSB actually got involved and did an investigation as to what happened there. I'd like to sort of get your, your take on this. There was, the question that I came away with after the investigation of the accident, uh, basically what happened was a, a tractor trailer was trying to alley dock on a street uh, food delivery truck. And there was one of those driverless shuttle buses. It was on its like, first day on the road, I think. And it was approaching from the driver's blind side as he was backing in. The driver uh, told the investigators that he was aware that the shuttle bus was approaching, uh, had an assumption that the shuttle bus would stop far enough away from his truck to allow him to continue making his backing maneuver as human drivers probably would if they saw a truck trying to back into an alley. Now, you get your odd, you know, guy in a big rush who tries to scoot around the front of the truck, but for the most part, uh, you know, car drivers are pretty willing to wait out a truck while it's backing into an alleyway. 
Anyway, this little shuttle bus didn't. It got right up beside the truck, practically, and as the truck was backing up, it bumped the, the side of the bus. So the question I came away with uh, after investigating, reading the story, and then writing the commentary, uh, will we have to start with a clean sheet of expectations and assumptions that autonomous vehicles might behave in ways that their programmers deem reasonable, or but, uh, but which defy decades of human experience? So for whatever logic was built into that shuttle bus, uh, it didn't seem to think it was necessary to stop far enough back. We, as humans, would expect it to do that. I can imagine all kinds of scenarios on an open roadway where that might occur. Do you think it's going to be problematic for human drivers to adjust to the presence of non-driverless vehicles or driverless vehicles on the road? That's an interesting question because a mix of automation with humans is going to be much more challenging than when things get fully automated. So that was a mix of automation with humans. It involved, if you look at the geometry of a truck backup, it involved the truck moving beyond what you might expect just from looking at it if you didn't have experience with the, with the backup operation. But if you if you draw a picture of, of where the of the radius of where the truck has to move in order to back up, the the, the bus didn't anticipate that radius, and, and that was that was something a, a problem that the design that was an unanticipated circumstance that the designers had not prepared for. So that that was really an interesting situation in that the the, the radius of curvature of the truck's movement was not anticipated by the by the bus. Exactly, and and that's that's where the problem arose. So again, not not to not to harp on the question, but uh, the driver was. Uh, Blamed isn't the right word, but NTSB that said, I think, and, and the police did, that the driver should have been more cognizant of the presence of this bus when, in fact, he couldn't see it for, you know, some portion of his backing maneuver. So there the question becomes, again, uh, what do we have to do to accommodate the ignorance, quote unquote, if you will, from of, of driverless vehicles? They're, they're learning, but it's going to be an interesting uh, <laughs> evolution as we learn to get along with one another, I think. I don't remember all the details of that one, but that's the one. That's one that I would put on the on the burden of the designer of the of the automation to be able to anticipate those. I mean, that was that was a geometric reality. There was no news to that. It's just that that it's not something that you would necessarily expect because you don't often encounter trucks backing up. So, yeah. so I I would put that more at the at the footstep of the at the doorstep of the of the designer of the automation rather than the dr- the driver of the truck. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about the designers and, and and their job. We don't know yet, really, when we'll be able to consider these things ready for prime time. And I'm talking mostly about trucks now than, rather than cars, but I think we can lump them together into the same pile. The trucks right now are that are in pilot testing and field testing are basically running back and forth between Phoenix and someplace in Texas. And they're covering miles and miles and miles of relatively predictable interstate highway. How are we going to determine when these things are safe or when we can green light them? Is it just going to be a matter of, well, we've ridden, uh, we've driven X number of million miles of driving without an incident? Or is there some other test we can apply or should apply to these things to determine when they're ready to be turned loose on their own? At this point in the development, I don't have a good quantitative answer to your question, but my qualitative answer is that I think that the public is very skeptical of this notion of automation and and a skeptical public is going to have to be convinced with a much, much greater safety record, not just a marginally better safety record, but a significantly better 
safety record on behalf of the automation. So that's that's a qualitative answer, but I don't I don't have enough experience, and I don't think the the industry has enough experience yet to have a quantitative answer. No, I, I think we're flying blind here and learning as we go. Um, I think it's admirable that we're getting all these millions of miles without incident. Um, certainly, probably if you stacked a dozen automated trucks against a, dr- a dozen drivered trucks or human piloted trucks over a year, you'd probably find fewer accidents statistically happening amongst the driverless vehicles and the drivered ones. Uh, how, how much better do they have to be? I mean, if we take the number of accidents that happen every year now in the U.S. involving tractor trailers, there's about 4,000 fatalities involving trucks, I say, that not just the, the, you know, the fault of the truck. But if we were to cut that number in half, that would be remarkable. That would be a huge improvement. But would that be good enough? The question of public acceptance is one that we're going to have to wait and see because the, this whole thing, the whole concept is so new that what all I can say with qualitative certainty now is the public, like me, is very skeptical of this notion of automation, but but I'm a big believer that it's going to be there and it's going to improve safety significantly. Eventually, the question is how much of a safety improvement will the public demand before they're willing to accept it? Yeah. I don't think we all, I don't think anybody really knows that yet. Why do you think people are nervous about autonomous vehicles? Probably because they've seen too many situations where automation went wrong, including on their own, you know, iPhone, laptop, whatever, mm-hmm. uh, their, their own automation in their car. I know that there's a lot of concern about automation issues in the car, and we've seen some of those from some of the crashes that have occurred. So so I think it's just the, the knowledge that automation is designed and operated by humans, and that means by definition there are going to be some mishaps and, you know, how much is that going to happen? And we don't know. We don't have a good answer to that yet. <laughs> well, I hope they sort it out before they turn them loose. But I mean, I'm fully prepared to to see these things out in, in the wild on their own, um, acknowledging that there's going to be mistakes. Uh, but humans make mistakes too. Is this just some weird aversion we have that it's okay to, for humans to kill other humans, but not okay for machines to kill other humans? Well, that's a good question, and I, I have I give a lot of kudos to the autonomous vehicle industry for realizing that no amount of test track testing and no amount of lab testing is going to make these cars suitable for the street. The only way to do that is by putting them on the streets and doing what the car makers are doing, which is learning from the real street experience. So mm-hmm. that's they're doing that, and I give them tremendous kudos for doing that and recognizing, yeah, test track is not enough, lab is not enough. You got to do the real deal in order to 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 figure out what kinds of previously unanticipated circumstances can should we expect to encounter with frequency. Well, I guess that's that's taking us into the um, final line of questions I had for you, and that's the, the ethical issues. Um, the trolley problem, I'm, I'm sure you've heard about the trolley problem. Um, that's where uh, some third-party operator has to make a basically a life-and-death decision, and there's some values built into that to... Uh, to uh, make the process a little bit more difficult. But just, if you're not familiar with it, I'll, I'll just kind of summarize it here. And this is this is from a Wikipedia summary, by the way. Sure. Yes, please do. So this the scenario is this. There's a runaway trolley burying, uh, barreling down the railway tracks. Ahead on the tracks, there are five people tied up and unable to move. The trolley is headed straight for them. You are standing some distance off from the train in a train yard next to a lever. 
If you pull this lever, the trolley will switch to a different set of tracks. However, you notice that there is one person standing on that side track. So you have two options. Do nothing, and the trolley kills five people on the main track, or pull the lever, diverting the trolley onto the side track where only one person is killed. <laughs> Which is the most ethical choice? I mean, you know, I've driven well over two million miles in a truck, and I don't know, countless more in a car. And I can't ever remember a situation where, in the moment, I had to make one of those ethical decisions. And if if I did, I certainly wouldn't be sitting there debating with myself uh, which way I was going to go, right or left, to avoid a crash and possibly involve someone else. Is it appropriate to expect the automation to make those decisions at the spur of the moment? And if they do, what what considerations do they have to bring to the table to make that decision, go right or left, kill five people or kill one person? That's a very good question that's going to require some ethicists. And I am free to admit I am not an ethicist, so I'm, I can't give you an expert opinion. I can just give you Chris Hart's opinion. Sure. And and the, the, that that scenario is relatively unlikely to happen. But the, the scenario that I've used in that, that, that I, I've used before, that is not so unlikely is what if someone is in your lane coming to, about to have a head-on collision with you. They're not supposed to be in your lane, but they are. And there are five pedestrians on the sidewalk, are you going to go on the sidewalk to avoid that crash and save yourself? Or are you going to crash into that oncoming vehicle and to save the pedestrians? As a practical matter, most drivers wouldn't have enough situational awareness to, to be able to sit there and decide they're just going to do whatever immediately comes to mind. And that that's, that's difficult to predict because humans, when startled, can do very uncertain things. So, but, but I, that's, that's a, couple of things that come to mind. One is that's a decision that should be made early on in the process rather than it's just like safety, safety features. Safety features are much better if they're designed from the outset rather than added on as tack-ons. Second is I think the federal government needs to play a significant role in this because I would hate to see 50 states setting ethical standards for cars and creating a patchwork quilt of those standards. So it's, this is going to take some serious discussion among people who are much more versed in ethics than I am. But the, the, the overall qualitative answer I can give is the fewer humans killed, the better. Beyond that, that's going to be a, a difficult choice. <laughs> I, I couldn't answer the question any better, but you're right. And you know, interestingly, I haven't heard from any ethicists yet in this discussion about autonomous vehicles. We're only talking well, to engineers and marketing people. Exactly. That's what concerns me. Is, as, as I say, as as with safety features, they're, they're much better if they're designed from the outset rather than added on as tack-ons after the fact. And so, and I think the same is going to be true of ethics as well. Mm-hmm. Well, at this point, the uh, Department of Transportation's sort of road pathway ahead, I guess, to autonomous vehicles includes requiring of the companies who are doing this some documentation on their safety practices and procedures and what have you. They're playing kind of loose with the rules, I think, now in order to allow uh, the technology to develop rather than, you know, constraining them in too many ways by imposing a whole bunch of rules. Are you comfortable at this point with what Department of Transportation is doing as far as the amount of latitude that these companies have? I'm not comfortable that the federal government has played as significant a role as it should have. And and not only that, but I'm also not comfortable that people who will be lobbying will be will mostly be from the auto manufacturer side and lobbying for less 
restriction and less regulation, there won't be anybody lobbying for public safety. So that concerns me that that's going to be an imbalanced process itself. But I, I think that that the federal government needs to play a much more significant role in this for a number of reasons. This is one of them. But in addition to that, this is an international issue, not a U.S. issue. And the states aren't going to be in a position to deal with Germany and Japan and Korea and Sweden and the other car making companies, whereas the feds are the ones that are going to have to do that. So I, I, I hope that the federal government will rise to the challenge because so far I have not seen significant action by them. Well, that's an interesting point. Development of autonomous vehicles is going on all over the world, as you say. Um, we have trucks, and I, I'm not singling out Daimler and Volvo for any particular reason other than to say one's from Germany, one's from Sweden. Uh, they both operate on U.S. highways. Uh, the programming that goes into them uh, is going to have to be consistent no matter what part of the world they're operating in, one would presume, uh, except for the sort of local traffic regulations. Should there be some sort of global body looking at this now, or is it safe enough to leave it to the U.S. Department of Transportation and the German Department of Transportation and the Canadian Department of Transportation? My hope is that there will be some harmonization of the standards around the world, just as there in aviation, there's a big effort to harmonize standards around the world because automation doesn't respect borders. And so I think that the, 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 the need to bring the players together and work on it together is, is huge versus letting everybody do it separately. Mm, I would agree. Okay, Chris, we're just about done here. We're coming up on uh, on a half an hour. Could you sort of just send us off with a couple of final thoughts on this, where you think we'll be in, say, five to ten years' time, or how soon this stuff will actually start making its way onto our public highways? Time predictions are very difficult. I, I would say, obviously, that people underestimated the extent of this challenge, and that's why it's all the more unfortunate that the designers didn't pay enough attention, in my view, to the decades of automation development in aviation and learn from those mistakes and not make those same mistakes over again. But I am very excited about the eventual prospect of, of much more automation on the highways that can save a significant number of lives. But but it's not as easy as people thought. And, you know, it wasn't that many years ago that people were saying in 2020, the streets will be full of driverless cars. Well, obviously, that didn't happen. So uh, I, I can't give a, a specific number of years, but it's, it's going to take longer than people thought. Christopher Hart, uh, former chairman of the National Transportation Safety Board, a lawyer, a licensed pilot, and uh, a pretty deep thinker, sir. I thank you for joining us on HDT Talks Trucking today. It's been a great conversation. Well, thank you very much for having me. And if you uh, would like to pursue this conversation at, at some later date, as things develop, I'd be happy to do that again. And I believe there was somebody you wanted to say hi to on this discussion, was there not? I did tell Jim that any excuse to say hi, mom, to a, usually to a camera is the way they say it, but to a microphone, that, work, that works for me. Hi, mom. There you go. <laughs> thank you. All right, Chris. Great conversation, sir. Jim, thank you very much for having me. Thanks for supporting HDT Talks Trucking for the past two years. We've got more great audio and video content coming your way in 2022, including a new video version of HDT Talks Trucking. We combine those videos with podcasts to give you more ways to access this great content. Check out the video version of HDT Talks Trucking beginning in 2022. Don't forget to subscribe to HDT Talks Trucking so you don't miss any future episodes. And please give us a like and a rating if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts. That really helps us build our audience. And you can keep up with what's happening in the trucking industry at truckinginfo.com. 
HDT Talks Trucking is produced by Deb Lockridge, recording and audio production by Jim Park. 